Good morning. We are continuing in a series in Acts that is called Sent, the Acts of the Apostles that Changed the World. And uh, within that series, we're sort of in a little mini-series as we're heading towards Easter on idolatry. Uh, and on idols. Um, And now is a good time. This period of the church calendar is called Lent as we move towards Easter. Now is the perfect time to be looking at idols and idolatry in our lives um, and seeing what are we really worshiping that is not uh, the Lord God. Um, And one of the major assumptions of this little mini-series is that idols are not just the things that we call God, but the things that we act as if are God. So we may call Jesus, Lord, but um, we often act in a way that says something else is Lord. Um, that, um, that we often have a secret Lord. Uh, that we may say Jesus is Lord of our finances, but um, in reality our finances actually serve some other Lord. A better house, um, a, night, a better car, better tools, more beauty products. That list could go on. We could say that Jesus is Lord of our politics, but if you actually looked at my anxiety and fear around policies and politicians, you would actually see that uh, my, my politics were in service of someone or something else. And so I can say one thing, but what, what do my actions reveal uh, are my true God? And so this morning we're going to see in Acts 18 a certain kind of idol that we're clued into by the reactions of different people. So I'm going to read to us out of Acts 18 this morning, verses 1 to 17. It'll be on the screen, but you can also follow along in your own Bible. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. While Silas, uh, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, uh, and uh, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galio paid no attention to any of this. 
Uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, Tim Keller talks about the difference between sorrow and despair. He says this, Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others, so that if you experience a career reversal, you can find comfort in your family to get you through it. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. And in Acts 18, we see sorrow and despair side by side because in verse 9, we see that Paul must be discouraged because the Lord comes to him in a vision and speaks words of encouragement to him. And we don't know exactly why Paul was sorrowful, but we know that it, has to, it must have had something to do with the fact that the Jews kept rejecting the gospel here and in previous passages. He's preaching the gospel, and they don't just reject it, they hate him for it. And so he's discouraged, at least in part of that, but he hears the word of the Lord and he's encouraged. But then in verses 12 to 17, we see the Jews are despairing because Paul... Uh, has been preaching against the law as the way of salvation. Paul has been preaching that, you know, you keep looking to the law for your value and your salvation and your righteousness, but I say that won't work. You need to look to Christ for your righteousness and your salvation. And so they go, they're, they're distraught about this, so they go to the Galileo to hear his words, but they're not encouraged. They are discouraged, and they lash out in anger and violence, and they beat up the ruler of the synagogue. And so we see this happening. Paul is sorrowful, but he's comforted by the word of the Lord, and he's encouraged. But the Jews are despairing, and when they hear the words of Galileo, they lash out in violence and anger because something ultimate to them had been threatened. So the place that they're in, Corinth, is a place full of idols. It was known for its idolatry. It was known that if you wanted to find any sinful or seedy behavior, you could find it in Corinth. Whatever you wanted to get into, you could find it. But it wasn't just a place of pagan idols, where uh, idols of pleasure and sensuality. It's also a place of religious idols. And we see that in the Jews, because the Jews lash out because their ultimate source of comfort and hope has been threatened. The law has been threatened because the law for Jews was not just um, some kind of rule for life or if you wanted to be a good person, you should kind of try to do the law. It was what the Jews would, um, the law was the way that the Jews could stand up before God and say, I am righteous. So they could say, I'm clean because I've followed the sacrificial laws, I've followed the moral laws, so God, you must accept me because I'm righteous. I can stand up and say I'm clean because I followed the law. And when Paul shows up and says, no, you can't do that, the law isn't good enough, you have to be in Christ and stand up and say, because I am in Christ, I am righteous. Because of Christ, I'm holy. Their law is threatened. The Jews had actually made a religious idol out of the law of God. So I'd like to suggest that we in this area have a similar source of comfort and hope. That we have a religious idol. And that we're drawn to the religious idol of self-sufficiency. So what we're going to see today is that we desire to be self-sufficient. We desire to be sufficient for ourselves while Christ wants to be sufficient for us. So we're going to look at that in three different ways. We're going to look at the lure, the lure of self-sufficiency, the lie of self-sufficiency, and the escape from self-sufficiency. Let me pray for us real quickly. Lord God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that your word is a mirror that we lift up and we can look at ourselves. And God, um, you know us better than we know ourselves. So Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves Um, in the text, in the places that you have said we are broken and sinful, but that we would also see your son, Jesus Christ, 
um, that we would see his mercy waiting for us. So Lord, we pray that only your truth is taught this morning and only your truth is remembered and that it would go deep into our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. So what do I mean by religious idol and what do I mean by self-sufficiency? Um, if you were to go into Richmond City right now or any probably major city in the U.S., with exceptions, I'm going to make some generalizations that there are definitely exceptions to, you would probably find that people became more morally relativistic as you went into a city. So people would say things like, well, everybody's got a different standard, everybody lives differently, you find what works for you, I'll find what works for me, I'll live up to my standards, you live up to your standards. But there's no universal standard, people just kind of figure out what works for them. Um, Do what makes you happy and gives you meaning. But I would say here, in an area like ours, in suburban, you know, Metro Richmond area, and again, there's, this is changing, there's probably exceptions to this, but I would say we tend to be more traditional. Um, and by that, I mean that we tend to have a belief that there are a way things, there's a way things are done here, that there is some level of universal standard that we all need to meet in order to be valuable and be, to be considered good, helpful, productive part, uh, part of our community. Um, and that, you know, some of that varies, you know, there's some different standards, but there are some agreed upon standards that if you don't meet this standard, you're probably not a valuable part of our community. And so there's all kinds of standards like this. I'll just list four. One, we have financial standards that we desire to be independently wealthy around here, that we want to be secure in our wealth and we want to be insulated from disaster. So we look to, you know, you have met the standard if you have your own house and you've got lots of land and you have lots of good uh, retirement accounts that you have met a financial standard and that makes you valuable. We have familial standards. We want to see our kids in the, at the top of their class in the best schools in the hardest classes. We want to see them getting A pluses on AP exams at the best schools. And we want, uh, we want to see them doing well in... Um, on their sports team, on the most competitive team, playing as many of the other, playing at the highest level and being one of the best on their team. We have familial standards. We have vocational standards, and we desire to be um, doing the best job at the best place at the highest level. We want to be uh, we want to be professionally passing the standard. We have beauty standards. We want to look beautiful. We want to be in shape. We want to eat well, um, and that's a standard that we actually look to. Um, and that we, we kind of assume is true for everybody. And these standards kind of equate to um, an individual law for each of us, that when we meet those standards or exceed those standards, we feel comforted and valued, and we're able to say that I'm sufficient. I'm sufficient. I have met the standard that people have for me or that I have for myself. And we think that if I'm financially independent or if my kids are doing well in school, then I, I've met the standard. I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty sufficient for myself. And ultimately, these standards are a kind of religious idol. Even if they have nothing to do with God or church or the Bible, they, um, they have a religious quality to them. That, we, that if we meet these standards, we can look to other people or to God and say, look, I've met the standard. I'm financially or my family is independent. We, we're doing well. Therefore, I'm righteous And I must be accepted by people. I must be accepted by God. There's a religious quality to that. Because we can say that God gives us comfort, but what really gives me comfort is when I open my bank account app and I see that number, or I see my investments gone up. We can say that God gives us hope, but what really gives me hope is my children's success and superiority to other kids their age. 
We can say that God gives us meaning, but my vocational position, the raise I've gotten, the, the company I'm working at, that's what really gives me meaning. That's what really gives me purpose. And we trade the God Almighty for a religious idol like the Jews did, for a law, for a standard by which we can say, I'm righteous, I'm good. Self-sufficiency is so enticing. It's such a lure because it whispers in your ear, you are good enough for you. You're good enough. You don't need anybody else. And even if you're not quite totally self-sufficient yet, you're you're on the right track. You're going to get there. You're good enough for you. And we all desire to hear that. You know, one of the worst things that a pediatrician can do is give you these benchmarks by which your child should be doing certain things. Um, You know, they should be rolling or crawling or talking or whatever by this age. Um, For whatever reason, Emerson was on the early end of all the movement-based things. She just was ready to go. Um, Which matters none at all because, I, I mean... Who remembers when they first rolled? You know, it doesn't correlate with any success in life whatsoever. Um, but, and so these did, her hitting these benchmarks did nothing for her. But I noticed as she was hitting them that they did a lot for me. <laughs> um, that I grew to love that feeling of when she would hit a benchmark and she was doing something early. I was like, yeah, that's right. She's pretty good. And I'd love that feeling of people saying, oh my gosh, she's already doing that? Are you serious? I was like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, pretty good, right? (laughs) Like, I I had some level of, uh, by some product of my genetics or my parenting, I had parented a kid past the standards, past the benchmark. Um, But that was just self-sufficiency. You know, there's such a thing as as being proud of your kids, but I wasn't just proud of Emerson, I was proud of me. Um, I was, I was making an idol out of my own self-sufficiency of having reached the standard. And self-sufficiency is an idol because it tells you, it tells you that you have met the standard as a parent. My kid's doing well, so I've met the standard. I'm doing well. That you've met the standard as a worker, that you've met the standard as a churchgoer, as a money manager, anything. It tells you you have done well and you can prove it because X. So that's the lure of self-sufficiency. And obviously we're all drawn to worship that in ourselves at some level. Is what, we, what we do is we take something good, because all idols are really is usually something good that you've made something ultimate. Um, you take something like personal responsibility, something the Bible does say. The Bible says you should be responsible for your finances. You should be a good parent. There, there are things that you should do well. Um, and we take that and we make it an idol and say, because I'm responsible, I'm valuable. And then it becomes an ultimate thing. And we're all drawn to that at some level. But self-sufficiency is a liar. Because if you point to your sufficiency and your capability as something that gives you value, you will be a hard-hearted, exacting, unforgiving person who is incapable of receiving grace. So what do I mean by that? There's a story in 2 Kings. It's not often taught on, but it's a Great story and has a lot for us on this. 2 Kings 5. It's a story of a man named Naaman. And the first verse starts this way. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So right up front, we're told that Naaman is one of the most capable, sufficient people you've ever met. 
He was one of the best military commanders of the day. He'd had great success. The king liked him, and his reputation was that of a valorant man, a mighty man. But, we get at the end, he was a leper. He was a leper. And you need to realize that in the ancient world, leprosy was not just a disease, it was a death sentence. I read someone this week who said it would have been like watching your body explode in slow motion. That your, your, your skin and your bones would start to break down and, and, and crack and burst and your limbs would start to fall off. You would die a slow, painful death and you would die it alone because nobody wanted to be with a leper. And so one of the most sufficient men in the world has leprosy. And his sufficiency has nothing on his leprosy, but it doesn't stop him from trying because the story keeps going in verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me with a, to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see he is seeking a quarrel with me. So Naaman does what most sufficient people would do with his leprosy. He says, okay, I'll take a bunch of money. I'll take a letter of recommendation from my king. I'll go to the Israelite king, and he will command the religious people to cure me, which would have been a normal thing for him to assume is that the, um, the government control would also control the religion, because most people at the time would assume religion is just social control. So the king, he's in charge of social control. He's in charge of religion as well. And so he would go to the king and say, I would like one cure for leprosy, please. Here's my money. Here's my letter of recommendation. But when he gets to the Israelite king, the king tears his clothes and says, are you serious? This isn't how this works. This isn't how our God works. Uh, he, he doesn't, you can't, put, you can't put our God in debt to you. And so he says, no, it doesn't work like that here. And so we continue on in verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So you see what happens? Elisha says, oh, send him to me. And he gets there with all of his chariots and stuff. Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He just says, tell him to go wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman is angry. And why is he angry? Because 
what Elisha's telling him to do is free, and it's easy. He says, just go wash in the Jordan seven times. He's like, are you kidding me? I came all this way to hear that. I've got all this money. Like, there's better rivers back where I came from. The Jordan's a dirty river. I'm not going to bathe in there. But his servants say, are you serious? Like, give it a try. And he does, and he's healed. So what's the point of the story? Naaman is one of the most powerful, capable, successful, self-sufficient people of his time. There's very little he could not have done with his money and with his reputation. But when he gets leprosy, he finds out his success, his sufficiency, they don't do anything for him. And what could heal him? Only a free gift of God. Only if he goes and puts himself in the river. But he's not able to receive that gift until he gives up on the idea of curing himself. He can't get into that river until he learns the lesson, your money, your reputation doesn't work here. This is a gift. You know, we're fond of saying that we're saved by grace alone, but if we take a really honest look at ourselves, I think based on our fears and anxieties and our hopes, a lot of us don't really just want to be saved by grace alone. We want a competitive edge on saving ourselves. We just want a little help from God so that we can save ourselves. We don't really want grace. We want what Naaman wanted, which is another opportunity to go and show all of the gifts and all of our reputation and put it before God and say, God, you should heal me and take care of me because I'm doing pretty well. You know, uh, self-sufficiency isn't just a distraction. It's a death sentence. You know, if Naaman had died, he wouldn't have died of leprosy. He would have died of self-sufficiency. He would have died of being unwilling to humble himself. And in the same way, unless we're able to admit our complete insufficiency to deal with sin, to deal with the consequences of our sin, until we're willing to admit that, we will never be cured. We'll never be cured. So maybe it's because of this that Paul, maybe it's because Paul knows about this idol, this religious idol of the Corinthians, that he writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10. He says this, starting in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. In other words, he's saying, for those of you who take pleasure and comfort and hope in your self-sufficiency, meaning those who think you stand, he says, take heed lest you fall. He's saying, if you, if you get a lot of value out of the fact that you don't really need other people, but maybe that other people need you, and you get your hope from that and your joy from that, he's saying, take heed because you will come to the end of yourself. Your sufficiency won't go all the way. And how do we know that? Because he says, our des- because um, our desire to validate ourselves through our sufficiency and our worth, he's saying that is common to man. What he's really saying is, you think you're the first person to think you're good enough? You think you're the first person to think, you know what, I know other people are messed up, but I'm not that messed up. He's saying, get in line. There's about a bajillion people ahead of you who all also think, but my sufficiency is different. I'm a little bit better. I'm doing okay. And there's some comfort in that 
to know this idol that we all tend to worship is not exclusive to us, but we need to be humble enough to admit, yeah, it's not exclusive to you. Everybody thinks this way. It's just sin. Uh, Richard Rohr, a a theologian, um, he says there's five things that people need to grasp if you're going to grow up into your identity in Jesus. There's five things. One, life is hard. Two, you are not that important. Ouch. Three, your life is not about you. Fourth, you are not in control. And fifth, you're going to die. Whoa. Saying there's five things that you need to grasp. If you're going to accept what Christ has done for you, if you're going to grow up into who Christ wants you to be, you need to realize that life is hard. You're not that important. Your life is not about you. You're not in control. And you're going to die. And we've got to be honest with ourselves and admit that what we really want to say to all of those things is, well, life's not that hard for me, or that I'm pretty important in my life, or my life does revolve around me sometimes, like people need me, or that I am in control of the important stuff in life, and I'll die when I'm ready. I've got health care, and I'm pretty safe, so I think I'm going to be okay. That's what we want to say, and unless we're willing to admit that that's what we want, that that's what we really believe in our hearts, then we're not going to be provided what Paul calls the way of escape. You know, when I've read this verse in the past about the way of escape, I always assumed that it meant, you know, when you're tempted, just remember God's nice, so it's not going to be that bad. He'll lower the temptation if it gets too hard, or he'll give you some strength to get through it. But that can't be what it means, because that's just more self-sufficiency. That's just more idolatry. That's just God saying, you know what, here you go. I'll give you a little bit extra to get you across the finish line. And it doesn't make sense of what he says afterwards, which is, therefore, flee from idolatry. The way of escape can be nothing except Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way of escape. He's the way of escape from idolatry, but Jesus' way of escape does not come through a glorious cosmic battle where he's ripping the heads off of Romans. No. The way of escape of Jesus came through his death on a cross. And until we're willing to, to look at Jesus on the cross and say, you know what, I deserve that. I deserve his humiliation and his execution. That's what I deserve. Then we'll never be able to say, but I have been given this, meaning his new life, meaning the resurrection, until I'm able to identify that, yeah, his humiliation, that's what I deserve, but I've been given new life. I've been given grace. I've been given resurrection. We'll never be able to accept the gift until we've looked honestly and said, but I deserve the execution. It's not not a coincidence in the story of Naaman um, that he has to, on two occasions, listen to servants to be healed. The first is from a little slave girl who says, you know, there's a prophet in Israel. He could help you out. And then again, when he's angry at Elisha's door and the servants say, are you kidding me? He said, go bathe, just go bathe. You know, servants have no delusions about their place in life. They know exactly who they are. They know exactly what they are. Servants are able to accept gifts because they have no delusions about whether or not they need a gift. You know, uh, when we first moved here, Mariah and I had a problem with our car where the brake light kept being on and the battery would die. And we took it to a mechanic. He's like, oh, I've seen this before, he goes, which is always what you want to hear. You're like, oh, yes, he knows. Um, and he goes in, he sticks a little rubber thing on the brake so that it's not pressing down, whatever. It took him like 30 seconds. He's like, you're good, you know, go, you're fine. We don't know charge. 
and we're like, no, 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 we've got to pay. He's like, seriously, it's fine. Just come back next time. I was like, no, 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 we've got to pay. He's like, we can charge you 20 bucks for it. So we went in and we paid for it. And I've thought about that since. So why couldn't I just accept it? Why couldn't I just accept that he just gave me a free gift? He just fixed my car for free. Why did I have to know that I'd paid for it? Why did I have to know that I'd put my money on the table? Because I want to be self-sufficient. You know, it's also not a coincidence that when Jesus shows up in the world, he doesn't show up like Naaman. He doesn't show up as a rich Lord with everything together. He shows up a lot more like Naaman's servants. He's, he's like the little slave girl who says, would that you were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He could cure you. He's like the servants at the end who say, will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? That's who Jesus is like. In order to be raised to new life in Christ, we first have to die. In order to be truly sufficient, you've got to put your own sufficiency on the table and say, this isn't good enough. Jesus is like the servant. So Paul ends his second letter to the Corinthians with this message, and I'm going to close with this. He, yeah. This is in First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, will you boast in your weakness today? Will you boast in your weakness so that the power of Christ can rest on you? Will you say, I'm insufficient for myself, but Christ has loads of sufficiency, dump trucks of sufficiency to pour on me that are not mine, but they're his? Are you willing to boast in your weakness today? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you do not ask us to meet the standard. You don't ask us to be sufficient for ourselves. You ask us to claim insufficiency. You ask us to identify with your death. You ask us to be servants. You ask us to identify ourselves with the lowly so that you can be our salvation. Jesus did not come to make it easier for us to be better. God, you sent him to be righteous for us, to be our righteousness. God, would we just accept the gift? Would we be willing to say, yeah, I need a gift, and yes, I'll take yours? God, I pray that you would humble us, each of us, in our own way, so that we can more fully and deeply understand your mercy. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Um, Now is the time for our...